And if you have your Bibles, I invite you with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. For the sake of time today, I will only be reading verses 8 through 11, and I will only be reviewing one question in our catechism, all right? So if you found Exodus chapter 20, let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. This is the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So our question is the question I would like for all of you to be able to answer By the end of the Ten Commandments series, that is, what is the law of God as stated in the Ten Commandments? I was encouraged to hear many of you are working on this memory work. Now, there are three blanks. So, in unison, can you say the first commandment, which is? That was pretty good. I heard about 13 of you say it. Okay, so here it is on the screen. You shall have no other gods before me. All right, so far we're doing all right. Um, Second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. You shall not make for yourself an idol. The third commandment is explained like this. You shall not misuse. Yeah, pretty close. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Some of you said don't take the Lord's name in vain. You're getting the idea. Let's try and keep working on it. The fourth one we just read today, it's on the next screen, Grant. And it is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Same with me so we can get it on our brains. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Some of you need to do more homework. All right. I'm teasing somewhat, but we've got this together. Let's work on it. Our big picture question today is... Are all ten of the commandments important for New Testament believers? And by important, I mean instructive. We understand we are not under the curse of the law. We are not under the law and its condemning power. We live by the Spirit if we are New Testament Christians. But in what way are the Ten Commandments still instructive? Are they all ten important for us as New Testament believers? I wrestled with this big-picture question the most— as I've been praying for and preparing for this sermon series. There's a reason. It's combined with today's commandment, the fourth commandment. Most Christians have no problem affirming the enduring nature of nine of the Ten Commandments. They see them explicitly restated in the New Testament in one form or another. Some people would go so far as to joke that they obey all nine of the Ten Commandments. And what they mean by that is they don't see the fourth commandment as having a lasting relevance today. Now, I would not personally 
have gone quite that far, but I, to be honest, couldn't have told you why. I've always internally or instinctively known that there is an importance in setting aside a day of worship for the Lord. The alternative would be strange and hard to apply. Like, when would Christians meet? What day would they meet? How often should they meet? All these questions would be difficult to answer. So in my own life, having grown up in church personally, I've always felt the importance of Sunday. But because there were conflicting opinions on what else happens on days like Sunday, I was confused. Uh, more on matter Should I or shouldn't I go out to eat? Should I or shouldn't I mow my lawn? What if I work a desk job all week? Isn't switching my routine up kind of like what the Sabbath is all about? Like some of you, raking leaves is actually relaxing for you. I don't understand that, but some of you, that is your thing. So what does rest look like? Does it look like a nap? or a walk on the beach? All of these questions swirling in my mind. In short, a failure to accurately define the extent of the duty of the fourth commandment, combined with some theological dispute over how closely the Sabbath was related to the old covenant, shadows, types, had led me to a place of less certainty about the permanence and applicability of the fourth commandment for New Testament believers. Now, maybe my story is unique, but I suspect that it's not. So, with that little bit of uncertainty clouding the beginning here, let's get some basic footing underneath us by considering what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has to say about the Lord's Day. Now, the Baptist Faith and Message is not Scripture. Well, let's be very clear. It's a statement about Scripture and supported by it And as a church, we affirm it. So, at the end of this message, I hope to have demonstrated from Scripture why I think this article in the BFM is helpful, accurate, and appropriately broad in its statement. Here is Article 8 of uh, the Baptist Faith and Message. It says, quote, The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So at the end of the message, if you're wrestling with some aspect of what I've said or preached, my prayer is you'll go back and look for that statement. Google Baptist Faith and Message 2000, find Article 8, and look at that as solid footing. I want to note five things from that statement about which I believe we must all agree. First, we must agree the Lord's Day is Sunday. Second, we must agree the Lord's Day is to be regularly observed. I looked up the word regularly in the dictionary. It is on a regular basis, at regular intervals. How does hebdomadally sound? Hebdominally. That would be weekly. How does weekly sound for a regular observance? How about every Sunday? Third, we must agree that the Lord's Day is set apart for us 
to commemorate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, I intend to show from Scripture in the book of Hebrews today that included in the commemoration of Christ's resurrection from the dead is the remembrance of the completion of Christ's saving work of redemption. That is going to be a major part of today's message. Fourth, we must agree that every Sunday, the Lord's Day, should, and I emphasize that word should, include exercises of worship that are both public and private. And I will later contend that the public worship should take precedence over private worship when they may come into conflict. But both are integral to what the Lord's Day is all about. And fifth and finally, we must make room for the consciences of others on areas where we disagree about further interpretation of how the Lord's Day should be observed. All right, so if you were following with Grant, you saw a picture of what's coming at the end of the message with those five points. We will hit them all again later. So I preached today's message in true humility. I know that I am not John Owen, D.A. Carson, Ernest Reisinger, or uh, Tom Schreiner. I may have read hundreds and hundreds of pages of theirs to prepare for today's message, but I understand that the depth of my theological prowess is what some of those men can hold in their pinky finger. So what I offer to you today is a humble effort at my best understanding on this topic. I also want you to know I'm speaking for myself. I am not declaring any official position of all of our elders. Listen, if D.A. Carson and John Owen don't agree on the relationship between the Lord's Day and the Fourth Commandment, I think there is room for good and godly Christians uh, to disagree to some measure here. But with that said... I want to preach with conviction, and I hope that I do so today. And I believe that there is a scriptural basis for the regular observance of the Lord's Day as a continuation of uh, the moral aspect and the enduring nature of the fourth commandment. I'm going to spend a majority of my time trying to faithfully explain uh, what is John Owen's exposition of Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10. As I prayed and studied and and read books about this topic, I found that that passage of Scripture and his exposition of it were a convincing New Testament argument for a Lord's Day Sabbath-keeping, where I'll use the word in the Greek text, a Sabbatism. You'll hear me use that word a lot when we get to the book of Hebrews because Sabbatism is a word the writer used in verse 4 excuse me, in verse 9 of chapter 4. He said, there remains, therefore, a sabbatism, a sabbatismos for the people of God. So I want to give you a short definition of what that word, as I define it, means. Sabbatism is both a mindset of participation in the spiritual rest found in Christ and a regular observance of of the pledge and token of that eternal rest by means of the Sabbath day, which is now observed on Sunday, that is, the Lord's day. I I hope to show all of that this morning. Have you strapped in your seatbelts yet, okay? 
So, are all ten of the commandments instructive? New Testament believers. And I ask that assuming, if I've assumed correctly, that you would see little objection to the idea that the other nine are relevant and important for New Testament saints, then I believe that if I can demonstrate the importance of a Sabbatism from the writer of Hebrews, then we will see how the fourth commandment has been transposed by the work of Jesus Christ, and there remains a Lord's Day Sabbatism for the people of God, and thus I will solidify the importance of all ten of the Ten Commandments. That's my goal in the rest of the message. The rest of the message is an answer to that overarching general question. So, we now address the fourth commandment. Follow with me in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and allow me to give you a few rapid-fire points for consideration in the Old Testament context. I want to address it right here in Exodus first. First of all, note the place of the fourth commandment along with the other nine that reflect God's character and unchanging nature. Now, I know that this is a logical argument, but I find it to be a convincing one. Wouldn't it be odd for God to situate this command with nine others that endure and have some moral or enduring aspect to them, and this one not have a moral enduring nature? That would be odd. Second, see how the command begins with the word in verse 8, remember. This indicates we are prone to forget or to neglect this duty. We are prone to forget or neglect it. Could it be that that's the case even today? That we need to be reminded of the importance of remembering the day. Remember also implies that the duty to remember this Sabbath day pre-existed the giving of the Decalogue. Now, if you were here last fall when we studied Exodus chapter 16, you'll remember that in Exodus 16, there was a a Sabbath that was being commanded to be observed. But even further back than that, as we will see, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, having been set apart by God and blessed even before the fall of man. Third, note the Sabbath is sanctified. The Lord blessed the Sabbath, we are told in verse 11, and made it holy. Fourth, note a pattern. The pattern is six and one. Six days to labor and one day to observe as a Sabbath. Fifth, Sabbath does not necessarily equal the seventh day precisely or Saturday. Okay, so Sabbath does not equal seventh day precisely. Verse 10 would have been redundant, and here's a fancy word for those of you, and you know who you are out there, that are following along for big words that I've used, tautological. A tautology is when you needlessly repeat an idea, a statement, or a word. So verse 10 would sound like this. The seventh day is the seventh day to the Lord your God. It would be an unnecessary repetition to say seventh day precisely equals Sabbath. I hope you track with what I mean by that. So what we can conclude then is that 
this is a rhythm of one day in seven that is commanded in the fourth commandment. There's later significance that is attached to the Jewish Sabbath, or the seventh day specifically, that I'll explain when we look at this from the book of Hebrews. Now, one other side note. Uh, The term Sabbath, which comes from a root word that means to or to rest, later came to import more meaning on it. I could think of words today that this happens with, but we don't have time. So it just came to carry more and more meaning with it over time. There were certain civic or ceremonial requirements that only applied to the Israelites that later they would call those feast days, those observances, Sabbaths. Okay, so uh, these feasts came to import on the term Sabbath more meaning. And I think, if I'm correct, that is what Paul is trying to jettison in the New Testament in Colossians and Romans when he says one person observes these Sabbaths or one person observes one day as better than another and another observes them all alike is because the Jews had taken on more and more meaning of what the word Sabbath means. Not just the weekly rhythm, but also these other holidays, holy days that they would observe. And so Paul is trying to keep off this Judaizing of the Christian faith where people were saying, you need to observe all of these um, holidays also if you're going to be a good Christian. And Paul says, no, one person can observe them in their own conscience, but they're not necessary for your salvation. And I believe that is what is being jettisoned with that term in Colossians and in Romans. Sixth, and very importantly, this commandment is devoted to concern for those for whom one is responsible. We see that in verses, um, verse 10, uh, this idea of those who are in your charge and those who are under clear God-given lines of authority, we are to uh, clear the day for them to observe. So to state it another way, it might read like this. Don't take the Sabbath day away from others. Don't take the Sabbath day away from anyone at all. Seventh, the fourth commandment is grounded in a creation principle. It finds its origins in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where we are told that the Lord blessed the, the Sabbath and made it holy. He blessed that day. He had worked for six, and he rested on the seventh, and he set it apart as holy, and then he blessed it. And by blessing it, there was the implication that humans would delight and enjoy that day. Much like the establishment of marriage, one day of the week set aside to worship God was an act of permanent significance. Theologians call it a creation ordinance. In fact, the very nature of humanity points to the importance of a day like this. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath said. Think about the constitution of what it means to be human. We are not mere beasts. We don't only deal with earthly things. And we are not like angels, completely and totally enveloped in spiritual worship of God. 
In fact, Psalm 8 says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So you sit below the angels, so to speak, but then you've given him dominion over the work of your hands. So, uh, to, to borrow John Owen's phrase, he says, we converse in a sort of amphibious manner between the upper and the lower set of creatures. Because of our peculiar constitution as both spiritual and earthly, we benefit, we benefit from a God-given gift of a day set aside to cease from our earthly endeavors and terrestrial things and to engage in spiritual matters that are of a heavenly nature. The very nature of being human says a day like this is a gift to exercise who we are. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, reminds us that since the creation of the world, God has set apart a day. Now, using verse 11 then as a pivot point, I want us to move to a careful consideration of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 3 and 4 and set them on your lap. We, are, we don't have time to read all of the text that I, I'm going to be covering, so I'm going to read some of it, and I'm going to summarize some of it, but a lot of what I have to say in the book of Hebrews is very in, um, integral to this consideration this morning, and we're, we're pivoting from the fact that the Sabbath— was grounded in a creation thing. He says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, okay? And we're taking that, and we're going to see that that is part of the conversation of the writer of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4. I believe the writer intends to show the nature of the relationship between God's work, God's rest, and Sabbath-keeping. He shows first, that the rest of God from his works is the foundation and the principal cause of our rest. We don't rest unless God has worked and rest and invited us to enter into it. And secondly, God doesn't simply rest from his works. He appoints a rest for others to enjoy. Okay, that's kind of the overarching mindset as we as we look at three works and three rests in Hebrews. Three works and three rests. The first rest is God's rest after the work of creation on the Sabbath. God worked to create. Six days he labored, and the seventh he rested. We've been discussing this already. When God finished creation, he ceased from his works and rested. That was his own rest. But then he blessed it and set it apart, sanctifying it for mankind to rest in. The day of rest was an expressive representation of, it was a pledge or a token of our entering into or being taken into participation in God's rest. Do you see that? But mankind failed to enter into that rest because of sin. So, we see the train of thought will be later developed in Hebrews to a second work 
of God and a second rest of God. That is, God's work of the redemption of Israel and his rest in Zion. God rested in the land of Canaan after redeeming the people of Israel and giving them the law. It was a restoration of Eden, so to speak. You'll recall the tabernacle, the temple had pictures of of pomegranates and a garden-like picture that God would dwell with his people. And he would rest and they would worship and delight in God's rest and God's completed work of redeeming his people. We see in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 41, Scripture says, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of all your might. There was a pledge of God's presence and his power and a rest that God entered into himself when he redeemed the people of Israel. God himself makes this comparison. I'm not stretching this by any of the imagination. Isaiah 51, verse 16. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Do you see how he compares the laying of the foundations of the earth to the calling out of the people of Israel? The psalmist quotes God saying about Zion in Psalm 132, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So you have to track with me. If you're going to see the third work and rest, you have to see the comparison between the work of creation and God's rest after it and the work of redemption of Israel and God's rest after it. God rested after he redeemed the people and the people of God were invited to enter into the rest of God. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And consistently, that rest for God's people was expressed by God appointing a day of rest as a token or a pledge of their eternal rest in his rest. That's why the Sabbath was so important to the Israelites. They saw it, and appropriately so, It was a sign to them that God was their God and they were his people. Now granted, that token day was the same day in order of days of the week with the day given after God's work of creation. The seventh day precisely, Saturday. But in Exodus the giving of this day was reestablished with new considerations in mind. It was appropriated by God for further ends and further purposes, namely, that the people of God remember his work in redeeming them from Egypt. The time for changing the day from Saturday to Sunday had not yet come because this work of redemption in the Old Testament was still preparatory for a greater work to come. And the way that God had dealt with humanity had not fundamentally changed from Adam to Moses. They both were under a conditional covenant of works. Obey and live, disobey and die. So at this point, the one Sabbath day of rest on Saturday has two meanings. 
It's a proportion of time required for the worship of God as a pledge and rest in his creation, to remember his work of creation. But then it had added meaning to the pledge of God's rest in the covenant of Sinai and the worship he intended under that administration when he dwelt in rest in his holy hill in Jerusalem and invited his people to enter into his rest. Are you tracking with me? This is very important that you see this so far. There's always, first, a rest of God after his works. They are the, that is the foundation of, second, a spiritual rest of obedience and worship for the people of God to enter into, which is accompanied by, third, a day of rest as a pledge and token of actually reaching that promised rest for all of eternity. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews intends to prove the psalmist was promising about the messianic age in Psalm 95. The writer of Hebrews is exhorting New Testament believers. Okay, catch that phrase. Stay with me about the whole overarching umbrella. He's exhorting New Testament believers to enter into a promised state of rest. And he's laying out how to do that by way of comparison with the first two works, rests, and days that were there to signify the coming rest of Messiah. So there's always a signal work of God whereon he enters into his own rest. Then there's a spiritual rest that he invites his people into. And then there is a day of rest that is expressed as a pledge and token of us entering into his rest. You have to see all three of those to see the parallel in the argument in this text. So, the foundational work of a Lord's Day rest is the work of Jesus Christ. That is the third work and rest in Hebrews. Christ's new creation work of redemption and his own entrance into rest. This is what I'm arguing Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 is about. Christ's new creation work is to be celebrated. It is to be remembered. And that day is Sunday. Look at the beginning of this very long section in Hebrews, all the way back in chapter 3 and verse 3. Hebrews 3, 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. There's the comparison at the head of all of this discussion. Jesus is counted of worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The writer of Hebrews is showing that the building of the church, we are his house, okay? The building of the church, the work of creating the church, is a greater work in the new covenant than Moses' work 
in the old. And he then goes on to demonstrate from the nature of the timing of the writing of Psalm 95 and its intended audience that no other rest was intended in that psalm except the rest of Messiah and those who believe in him. He's laying out these three rests of God and God's people mentioned in scriptures and looking at them one by one. And this is what I'm summarizing uh, from here to chapter 4, 9, and 10. And he makes two clear statements about those rests. First, the rest promised in Psalm 95 cannot be the rest that God took after the creation of all things. He says these words were spoken long after the foundation of the world. Second, the words in Psalm 95 also cannot be rest in the land of Canaan because the people of God failed to enter into that rest because of unbelief and died in the wilderness. Now, the writer knows some people might object and say, well, the people of God did eventually enter the rest of Canaan under Joshua, right? Not so fast. Turn to Hebrews 4 and verse 8. He says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So he is excluding that second rest by verse 8. He says, People of God have failed to enter into the first rest of creation, the second rest in Canaan. So there remains, there has to be another rest in mind. And this new rest has a new foundation, a new work. Remember, every rest has a foundational work that underlies it. The work of creation, the work of redeeming his people. There's an underlying work that is presupposed before the rest. The foundation of the Sabbath rest for the people of God in the new covenant will come when and only when the author of that covenant rests and ceases from his works and enters into his own rest. That's what happened the first two times, and it creates the expectation of how verse 10 of chapter 4 should be interpreted. Now, a close look at the original language of verse 10 is required. So, I put on my seminary student hat and all the hard work that went into preparing and studying, and I offer you my best translation of the Greek, and then we're going to compare it with the experts, the New American Standard Version, which is uh, very consistently a wooden translation of the original language to English. This was my translation. Four, verse, okay, you're looking at verse 10. I, I disagree with exactly how ESV has translated. The CSB is actually a little more vague and more appropriately fits what I believe is the proper translation of verse 10. Okay, here's my translation. Four, the one who has entered his rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his own. The one who has entered into his rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his own. Now, let's check it, okay? Here's the NASB, all right? And pretty close. For the one who has entered his rest 
has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his own. There's a comparison being made here between the one who has entered his rest, who has also rested from his works, and God, who rested from his own works. And I believe that's emphatic in the Greek. Now, who is the one who has entered his rest? That is the question. Who is the one who has entered his rest? Some people will argue that verse 10 is talking about believers. Believers entering rest from, say, their sins, their own works, their sorrows or sufferings. But we know that in this life, believers are not exempt from sorrow and suffering. We also strive to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're working on that. And we are called and commanded toward good works. So I think this interpretation is already not looking promising. Also, consider the nature, the nature of God's rest. Remember, the comparison is the one that entered his rest, rested just like God rested from his. The rest of God was a rest of satisfaction and refreshment in all he had done. God still worked to preserve his creation, but he was pleased with. He said, I see all that I've made, and it is very good. He was satisfied in his labors, and he rested and was refreshed in them, as Exodus says. Now, I ask this question. Can we, as believers, enter into a rest of satisfaction with our own works in the same way God rests from his works? Can we be fully satisfied in this life with our works? And I would say no. We cannot rest from our works like God rested from his in this life. The one who has entered his rest, I don't think, is a blanket term for believers. I believe it is very clearly about Christ. Christ, the builder, the builder of chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, who's finished the job. He's finished his work of redemption just as God completed his work of redemption of Israel and the completion of creation. Here's another clue. This phrase in verse 10 is about Christ because there's a shift from the plural in verse 9 to the singular in verse 10. Look at verse 9. It says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people, plural, of God. Then he shifts to the singular, and he says, The one who has entered his rest. There's a, if you wanted to continue in the plural, he could have said it like this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For those, plural, who have entered into their rest have ceased from their works just as God ceased from his own. But instead, he says the singular. Also, seeing verse 10 as being about believers, if you take that view, would take away the force in my mind of the word that in verse 11. So he says, us, back to the plural, therefore strive, like work to me, to enter that rest. Which rest? The rest of the one who entered his rest. It's pointing back to the rest of Christ. That, that's the best arguments I can make for verse 10 being about Christ ceasing from his works 
and resting, just as God sees from his own. And then we are commanded to strive to enter into that rest. And that rest is the rest of Christ from his works. Okay, this is the best I can do. I'm doing my best. Now, again, let's keep the big picture in view. Because the comparison of chapters 3 and 4 is not between the works of God and the works of men. The context is the work of Christ deserving greater glory than the work of Moses and the kind of glory that a builder gets when he works to build a house. So to summarize, what verse 10 says is that just as God worked in the creation of everything, so Christ, being God, worked in the setting up of the church. And after finishing his work, he entered into his rest just as God entered his own. And by extension, when he did so, he delimited or marked off a special day of rest for his people because his entrance into rest took place on a certain day. That is the first day of the week. And that's why I believe he says in verse 9, there remains therefore a sabbatismos, a sabbatism for the people of God. Because, verse 10, he that has entered into his rest has ceased from his works like God, as God did from his own. The writer coins a term, sabbatismas, to implicate both, I believe, a spiritual rest aimed at and a Sabbath-keeping or observation of Sabbath rest and token of entering into Christ's eternal rest. In common with the former days, this Sabbatism implies Sabbath-keeping. But the former two rests, remember, had the same day, namely Saturday. But now, the day itself has changed because it belongs to another covenant and has as its foundation another work and another rest. A new day of rest accommodated for the church rises from the rest that our Lord Jesus entered into when he ceased from his works. Now some might wonder, okay, I'm tracking with you that this is Christ ceasing from his rest, but couldn't Christ have been laid to rest when he was laid in the tomb? Like we say at somebody's funeral, we're laying them to rest. No, it could not have been when he was laid in the grave because the penalty, or as Peter calls it, the pains of death were still being exacted. Furthermore, Romans tells us that Christ was raised for our justification. So brothers and sisters, if Christ had stayed in the tomb, the work of new creation, new life, and redemption would not have been possible. But he arose. That's a good spot for an amen. I heard one sister said she's wanting to say amen. Y'all are on pins and needles sometimes. Please affirm me if you believe he rose from the dead. He arose. And at his resurrection, Christ was freed from the sentence, power, stroke of the law, and he was discharged of all debts of our sins. It was at his resurrection, the types, predictions, prophecies were fulfilled concerning the work of our redemption, and the whole foundation of the church of God was finished. 
when he was declared, as Romans tells us, to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And I ask, on what day did Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, rise? The first day of the week. On that day, the foundation of his works and rest stand firm. On that day, he chose to appear to his disciples, minus Thomas, and he waited until that same day, an entire week later, to appear to them again with Thomas. It was on that day, seven weeks after his resurrection, he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where the disciples were gathered in one accord to observe the day, signaled to them by his resurrection. Their obedience to meet on that day, confirmed by the giving of the Holy Spirit. And from that time forward, the apostles and the apostolic churches met and assembled on the first day of the week. So predictably so, Paul encouraged taking a collection from the Corinthian church that was saving for a love offering for others. On what day? The first day of the week. And on the evidence of Revelation 1.10 alone, we may know that there is something set apart about Sunday when John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John calls Sunday the Lord's Day. Think about that. If Paul calls it the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 because the Lord himself had the authority to institute its observance, for what other reason would John call it the Lord's Day than because Christ had the authority to institute its observance, he himself being Lord of the Sabbath? John didn't surprise the churches when he wrote with this new name, so to speak, merely used this name as a familiar name to note the time of his visions. They already knew the Lord's Day was Sunday. So, John Owen gives a summary of what we've all covered in Hebrews like this. Under the New Testament, we find a new creation, a new law of creation, and a new covenant. We also find the rest of Christ in that work, law, and covenant. We've we've considered the limiting of the day of rest to us on the day wherein Jesus entered into his own rest. saw a new name given to that day with respect to the authority by whom it had been appointed. We note from history an an observation of that day by all the apostolic churches, all leading to the conclusion we may say of it, This is the day which the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And then Owen joined that summary to his own personal testimony about the observation of Sundays, which I find very instructive. He writes, quote, For my part, I must not only say, but plead while I live in this world and leave this testimony to the present and future ages, that if I have ever seen anything in the ways and worship of God wherein the power of religion or godliness has been expressed, anything that has represented the holiness of God and the author of it, anything that has looked like a prelude to the everlasting Sabbath and rest with God, which we aim through grace to come into, it has been there and with them where and amongst whom 
the Lord's day has been held in the highest esteem and a strict observation of it attended unto as ordained for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Leonardtown Baptist Church, when we faithfully gather together on the Lord's day, we get a prelude of heaven. A prelude of heaven. It is a taste of everlasting Sabbath. Each Sunday, a token, a pledge, a reminder to us of our eternal rest and communion with Christ in his rest. What should the Lord's Day look like? A little slice of heaven on earth where worship of God is our primary focus and fellowship with one another in Christ is very sweet. Now with that picture, as Sunday being a taste of heaven in your minds, I want to end where I began with things this morning, things about which we must agree. First, the Lord's Day is Sunday. Not a few hours. The Lord's Day. I pray you have found this sermon convincing that Jesus himself ceased from his works on that day and appeared on that day instituted that day such that John would call Sunday the Lord's Day. Second, the Lord's Day is to be regularly observed. I recognize that for some of you, I am preaching to the choir. After all, you're here today, right? You've prioritized worship on this Lord's Day. But I also recognize that one Sunday in church does not a regular observer of the Lord's Day make. According to the statistics, it could be that this just happens to be the one Sunday when worship fit in your calendar. One survey I found from 2014 says that 30% of Southern Baptists attend church as little as a few times a year to just once or twice a month. 13% of them said they attend seldom or never. In light of what I hope to have shown from the enduring, instructive nature of the fourth commandment, I believe it's entirely possible that the Holy Spirit may be convicting some of you that you need to make some changes in your own life about a regular observance of the Lord's Day. Or maybe share this message with someone who you know needs to Be reminded of its importance. Brothers and sisters, as plainly as I know how to say it, if you are a Christian, every Sunday belongs to Jesus. Not to your boat. Sunday does not belong to the woods. It doesn't belong to your relatives. It doesn't belong to your kids' travel team. It doesn't belong to your boss. It is the Lord's day. The enduring moral component of the fourth commandment is God calls us away from our worldly pursuits one day in seven to worship him. We are invited to come and meet with God 
at Mount Zion, Hebrews 12 says, under a gracious gospel, we get to take our minds and our souls as far as we are able from all occasions of life and busyness of this world. Did you hear the call to worship? Be still. Busyness so we can walk with the Lord on this day. And if you find that a bondage or a burden or boring or not a good use of your time, I encourage you, search your heart. Perhaps you would find the idea of an eternal Sabbath rest, to which this is a pointer, equally uninteresting. And that could be a troubling indication that one or more of the first three commandments may also be being transgressed in your life. From time to time, I will hear people say they don't feel like they have enough time in their busy lives for spiritual growth. But hear this. In a typical lifetime, you will be given, if the Lord wills, three to four thousand Sundays. Imagine how much scripture you could read. How many verses you could memorize? Time and prayer you could spend pouring out your heart to God or people's needs to whom you could minister if you regularly observed one day in seven as set apart as unto the Lord. Third, the Lord's day is set apart for us to commemorate the rest from Jesus' work of redemption that was signified by his resurrection from the dead. This is where I expounded a little bit on the BFM, okay? Because we said the the resurrection was the signal of the finish of the work that Christ had completed. Thus, the work of Jesus' redemption is considered as we commemorate him. I hope you're convinced. Uh, By Hebrews 4.10, the basis of this day is the foundation of Christ's rest, all of which began the day he rose victoriously from the dead and accomplished our full redemption. The Spirit applies Christ's work to us. He gave another comforter to his church, but Christ has entered into rest and invites us to participate in it as well. Fourth, the Lord's Day should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Now, if you're going to do that, practically speaking, you need to prepare. As my friend Dean says in Tallahassee, Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. So we should prepare for the Lord's Day. Meditate on the person of the Son whose works and rest are the foundation of Him. Pray. Pray that God would give Express your dependence upon Him to exercise this duty of worship on the Lord's Day. And third, instruct people in your house, families, those in your charge about the nature and way of the God we worship. It is incumbent on those who have others in their charge to teach them to worship God. And the day Christians worship is Sunday. Other things you can do might be as you're struggling, I mean, to get the kids out the door, lay their clothes out the night before, have them take a bath the night before, do some things to prepare just practically. You are smart people. You can find a way. But think of Saturday evening as a time to prepare your heart for Sunday morning worship. And then make use of the day itself to give glory to God in the celebration of his worship. 
use all the ordained means that God has given, all the ordinances of worship and the church that take place when we assemble together. This is why I say prioritize public worship because there are some things that only take place in the church, like preaching and baptism and the Lord's Supper. Use prayer, use singing. Anything related to the worship of God that takes place here on Sundays, services, Bible studies, youth groups, prayer meetings, choir, anything, it should be an easy yes for us to involve ourselves in because these 24 hours belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the Lord's Day is to be a delight. Way back when I began this message, <laughs> I told you that I struggled because I felt like no one could give me a comprehensive list of do's and don'ts for the Lord's Day. And I understand that this message will probably leave some of you frustrated if you were looking for me to give you a legalistic list of do's and don'ts about questions for which you may be prone to ask. And with that said, I feel confident about the duty of worship, public and private, and I want to commend to you a point of view with a word picture about Sundays. It is, in essence, the way I have practically been thinking about Sundays myself. I want to allow worship of God to displace all other questions about what I can or can't do on Sundays. Think of it like pouring more worship and praise of God, both public and private, into of the 24 hours we call Sunday and let the rest of the questions about activities for the Lord's Day be displaced out of that glass. There are a few things that are clear. I'm to cease from my labors and worldly pursuits, to rest in Christ's rest, and to worship publicly and privately. But other than that, ask yourself, in a way that is a delight and not an exhausting duty, how can I pour in more public or private worship or enjoyment of God and his glory into the hours I'm given on Sunday and displace the other things where in my own conscience I am unsure about their fitness for the day? I believe that is a God-honoring question and approach to take. Or to put it another way, how can I make Sundays seem a little more like a foretaste of worshiping God for eternity. Don't allow the same pitfalls of legalism and formalism that confronted our Jewish fathers in Old Testament times to steal away from the richness and power of a Sabbath day for you. Based on your own ability, you should endeavor to sanctify the name of God in the duties of the day. But, please hear me, Mileage may vary. Your mileage may vary. Aside from what is clearly commanded, you are not obliged by the examples or the prescriptions of others according to their own abilities to answer that same question I just asked. That's what I appreciated so much about the last statement of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's all about the Christian's conscience. For example... Christians, according to the teaching of Jesus, consider works of necessity and deeds of mercy to be fully in keeping with the Lord's day. So let me say a word of thank you to those of you who run emergency rooms 
and ambulances on days like Sunday. If for whatever reason you're unable to swap your Sunday shift, hear me very clearly. It is not a sin for you to serve in that work of necessity. Likewise, some people, based on their personal makeup, they may be a little more energetic. I thought of a few, but I didn't want to call anybody out this morning. Some people that have all this gusto and energy, physically able to minister to the needs of the poor, visit a shut-in, or pray with somebody who's sick. Does that make you less of a Christian if your get-up-and-go had gotten up and went the last six days? Of course not. Your nap and that person's act of mercy are being done to the glory of God. There's room for difference in how our Sundays look. Let's have a frame of mind in the Lord's Day that is matching the spirit, freedom, and liberty of the gospel. Our minds should not be influenced by the curse of the law, terror of the law, threatened by the death penalty in the Old Covenant. We have not come to Mount Sinai, as the writer of Hebrews says. We've come to Zion. The authority and the love of Christ are the cause of our obedience. Our main duty lies in an endeavor to get spiritual joy and spiritual delight in the exercises of this day, which are the effect of our own freedom in Christ. And in that spirit, the prophet Isaiah says, call the Sabbath a delight. So, if in any way, aside from clear conviction of the Holy Spirit on the grounds of the Word of God, you feel burdened by this message on the Lord's Day, I have failed to communicate well, and I'm sorry. Truly sorry. But insofar as I have encouraged your hearts and affections toward setting aside a day each week to delight in Jesus Christ and enjoy his new creation, redemptive rest, then I will consider this sermon on the fourth commandment a success, and may God receive the glory for it.